0: And I'll just pray for you before you start, if that's all right. Dear Lord, we thank you for Rob, that he could come here and speak to us today. I just ask that you would bless him as he brings the message to us and give us ears to hear the message you have in store for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Ryan. And thank you to the worship team. It's always interesting as a speaker that you never know what songs they're going to sing, And uh, they never know what I'm going to speak on, but the Holy Spirit knows both and puts them together so well. And those songs and the words of those songs tie exactly into what we want to look at from God's word this morning. So I'm going to ask you to take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 4. It really is a privilege to come and to to be with you this morning. One of the things about being a local pastor, like we were at Open Bible for 21 plus years, is that you kind of always get stuck at your own church. And you never get to get out and meet your brothers and sisters and worship with them and and enjoy the fellowship together. And that's been a real delight for us. Uh, We've been able to speak in a few churches in Swift Current uh, several occasions and just to be able to mingle with God's people on a greater scale. And there really is only one body, isn't there? There's really only one church, and only one Lord, and only one baptism, and we're all part of that. So it really is a great thrill to be with you here this morning. I would want to take you this morning to this passage because I think over the last year, in fact, we could extend that and say two years, that I really feel our eyes as the bride of Christ have been shifted away from the bridegroom. We have been caught up in this pandemic, and there is a very real virus that is life-threatening and taken many lives. That should be treated seriously. We've got sidetracked by all the regulations in the society and the things that we can and can't do, and and then that creeps into the church, and it limits what we can do in our personal lives, and, and it's just taken our eyes off of the Lord Jesus. And I think this being the second day of a new year, there's nothing better for us than to just take this half hour together in God's word and just fix our eyes once again on the author and the perfecter of our faith, our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. There's such a great need for that. And if we're going to start the year properly and walk with our master faithfully in this year, uh, we will need to do that for sure. It's the text that we're going to look at is chapter four of Hebrews and verse 16, where there's an invitation for us to approach God's throne of grace. That's what I'd like to talk to us about this morning is God's throne of grace. Now, a throne is a picture that in Canadian society just doesn't have the same effect as it would if you were living in the days of this letter being written to the Hebrew people. Because a throne is a place of majesty. It's a place of power, of dominion, of strength, of sovereignty, of control. The people that read this letter understood clearly what a throne was. They understood that the one on the throne who ruled had absolute authority and their word was absolutely final. There was no challenging it. We're looking today at God's throne. It's called a throne of grace. It's interesting, as you look at the scriptures, Solomon had a throne which was very elaborate. If you go to the Old Testament, you would find it there. And it's a throne that had six steps leading up to it, twice as many as your stage does. And then on the top of those steps would be his golden throne. It was made of ivory. It was overlaid with gold. On each end of those steps was a lion an image of a lion made of ivory overlaid with gold. So as you approached those steps and went up them, you would pass by the six lions. We're told that his footstool was made of solid gold. I mean, that's kind of a nice footstool. On each armrest, just to the sides, was a large lion, ivory overlaid with gold. Can you imagine walking before Solomon and approaching that throne with that kind of glory and splendor on it? Probably the most extravagant throne that was ever made was by an emperor in India, and his name was Shah Jahan. He's actually the one that built the uh, Taj Mahal, and you've probably heard of that or seen pictures. In 1628, he built a throne called the Peacock Throne. It took seven years to build. On the back of the throne were two peacocks spread with full plumage, all decorated with expensive gems. The throne was actually the shape of a square. There were poles going up with a canopy over it and four legs on the bottom of it. It was made of 2,535 pounds of gold. That's a lot of gold. He had about 570 pounds of precious gems, including very rare diamonds, rubies, emeralds, all kinds of precious jewels on that throne. If you had seen that throne, you would have thought to yourself, this guy has everything. If you were to take the 2,535 pounds of gold and put it into today's terminology and price, that would cost about $73 million just for the throne, never mind all the 570 pounds of jewels and all the labor. It's estimated it would probably cost about 130 to $140 million in today's. Expanses. That's incredible. You know what's interesting when you come to this text with me in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 16? There's not one single detail describing the throne of God, the throne of grace. Not one. We're not told how big it is, we're not told how, how splendorous it is, we're not told what it's made of. Why? Because God's ways are the completely opposite of the world. You and I are impressed with the outward things. We marvel and dazzle at, at extravagance and those things that are out there. God looks at the heart and the character. What God wants us to know and see is the one on this throne. He is our great high priest, we're told. That's what we're to focus on. And we're to focus on the fact that what we receive when we come to this throne We receive, the text tells us, mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. That's what the Holy Spirit wants to impress us with. The Holy Spirit's desire is always to shine the light on the person of Jesus Christ. And he's the one seated on this throne called our great high priest. And the Holy Spirit is not interested in describing to us at this point what this throne looks like. He wants you to see the one on the throne. And he wants you to understand what it is that you can receive when you approach this throne. It's mercy. And it's grace to help us in our time of need. Bob went over well the text from Isaiah 41.10 this morning. We are needy people. We have fear. We have all kinds of things going on. If ever there's a time for the church to approach God's throne, the throne of grace, it's today. And to remember this one that's on it. So let me read to you the text. And you can follow along if you like. But I'm going to start it in Hebrews chapter 4. And let's pick it up at verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith that we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are. And yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne, throne of grace, with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. We should understand a little bit about context before we just zero in on this throne for a minute. So the whole purpose of the book of Hebrews is to show the greatness of Jesus Christ, particularly as a priest and his work, in comparison with the old covenant and the priests then. And so you'll read Hebrews, these words again and again, superior and better, always talking about Jesus, always talking about how he is better and greater than any of the old covenant, any of the priests, any of the sacrifices that were ever made. If you look at verse 14 with me, there are two descriptions of this one who's on the throne. I want you to notice them. The first one is this. He is a great high priest. The writer wants to emphasize the difference between Jesus and any other priest that these Hebrews would have been familiar with. Nobody else in all the Bible ever has this title, a great high priest. There were high priests and there were priests, but only Jesus is called a great high priest. It distinguishes him as greater in every way than any other priest that ever lived. That's what the writer wants us to understand. And then he uses another title. If you look at the text again, verse 14, you'll see it. Jesus, the son of God. Jesus, the son of God. What is he saying to us? He's saying to us, and it's interesting, he doesn't say Jesus, the son of Abraham. Jesus, the son of David. Those are titles and references other times. But this time, it's Jesus, the son of God. Jesus is his human name. It's the name he was given by Joseph and Mary. The son of God is his name as far as divinity goes. This is the God-man. And the Hebrew writer wants us to know this. The writer of this book wants to put it down in a highlighter to these people. This person I'm talking about on this throne, this throne of grace, this is the great high priest not just a high priest. This is Jesus, the Son of God, the God-man. And that's why he explains to us in this very text and says right here in the text, we read it to you earlier, he's able to sympathize with real life. He understands, he can empathize with us. Why? Because he's the God-man. So the one on the throne that you and I approach, so important to understand, he's like no other, and yet he identifies with us in a very clear and a very, very real way. If you were reading this as a Jew back in this day, you would struggle with this because this writer is going to great lengths to put Jesus far above anything that you've ever thought of before. He wants to make that distance as broad as he can. And so they would firstly be caught like, what do you mean great high priest? Is this high priest? No, Jesus is the great high priest. He's the son of God. Now, if you're a Hebrew reading this, you would say to yourself, wait a second, I know this Jesus, and I know that he came from the line of Judah, not of Levi. So what are you talking about that he's a priest? How could he possibly be a priest? Because he's not even from the right tribe to be a priest. As you read through the book, you'll understand that the writer is simply going to tell us that that this Jesus is a priest. Why? Because he stands between God and man. That's the role of a priest. When Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2, he says there is one God and one mediator between man and God, the man Christ Jesus. He's a priest. He's pointing that out to us. Priests made sacrifices. You read Hebrews, you find out the greatest sacrifice of all is that Jesus sacrificed himself. He is a priest. In fact, as you read the scriptures, you find out that it tells us Jesus is both prophet, priest, and king, all three. He's a prophet in the sense that when he came, he revealed God. He spoke on behalf of God to mankind. He's a priest and he stands between us and God. He laid a sacrifice down of himself. He's king in that everyone one day will bow before him and acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He will, as Isaiah 9.6 says, rule from sea to sea. He will be king of kings and Lord of lords. Now, do you understand who's on this throne? I just want you to get that clear in your thinking. Now, there's one other thing I want you to notice before we actually go into this text. And that's this. Take a look at the, the scriptures with me again because I want to point out something that this is the, actually this exhortation for us to approach the throne of grace is third one in a row that comes in this text. There's three exhortations and they all begin with let us. It's a great salad. So if you take a look at it in verse 11, it simply says this to us. Let us therefore make every effort to enter into this rest. That's the first exhortation given to us. If you look at verse 14, comes the second one. Let us hold firmly to the faith that we profess. And then verse 16, let us approach God's throne of grace. These three exhortations are all connected and they all ascend and build. So you take a look at it and say, well, okay, how do I enter into this rest? By holding firmly to the faith that we profess. And how do I hold firmly to the faith I profess? By approaching the throne of grace, where you'll find help and mercy and grace to do that. Do you see how they go together? We're to enter into the rest. We do that by holding firmly to the faith we profess. We do that by coming before the throne of grace and asking for the help. Now, then, how ought we to approach this throne of grace? How should we come? Before this king. How should we come into his presence, his chambers, and and come before a king such as this? Whatever you may think about the throne of God, above all things, it's a throne of grace. So let me just give you an illustration of the Old Testament. There's several times that we're told what kind of throne God's on. We're told that He is seated on a throne of justice and judgment. And that does with his authority, his ability to be the judge. We're talking in the Old Testament about a throne of glory. It is more glorious than any other throne. More magnificent, more splendorous than any other throne that there possibly is. Go to Revelation chapter uh, 3, chapter 4, and you'll understand that as the throne is described there for us. But it's also a throne, the Old Testament says, of a throne of holiness. So God's throne is the throne of judgment. It's a throne of glory. It's a throne of holiness. Now, grace is unmerited favor and love poured out on someone like me who is corrupted to the core and doesn't deserve anything but judgment. That's what grace is. So when you receive grace, when you receive that unmerited favor of God, it satisfies the one who's on the throne of judgment. It satisfies that. And it takes that judgment for me. When you receive the grace of God and become born again, it glorifies him, speaking of the throne of glory. When we think about the throne of holiness, the fact that there's no sin in him and his purity, when we receive the grace of God, it satisfies his perfect holiness. So this throne of grace is just like, like wrapped around all the other titles. It encompasses all of them. If you want to know best of all what God's throne is like, it is a throne of grace. Now in verse 16 of our text, just think about these words. This is what it says. Let us approach the throne of grace. Some translations will say it this way to you. Come near the throne of grace. Do you see the gracious character of the one on the throne? He's not commanding and demanding you come before him. He's inviting you. He's given you an invitation. He's saying to you as his child, come to me. Just come into my throne room. Just come before my throne and ask me as King of Kings and I'll give you what you need. I will give you help. I'll give you mercy. I'll give you grace. Just come. You know as you study the scriptures, that is always the heart of God. That is always what he's saying to mankind. Matthew chapter 11 verse 28, Jesus says, Come to me. Come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Just come. He's always inviting us to come. If you were to go to Isaiah, and we read from Isaiah earlier, chapter 55 and verse 1, come, all of you who are thirsty, come to the waters. You have no money. Come and eat. Come and buy wine and milk without money, without cost. Just come. God is always inviting mankind, come before me. Just come to me. He's a God of grace. James chapter 4 and verse 8. If you come near to God, he'll come near to you. It's Peter who said the words of 1 Peter 2.4. Come to him, the living stone. It's in Revelation at the end of the Bible, 22.17. The spirit and the bride say what? Come, come. Let the one who hears say come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes take the free gift of water of life. Just come. God is always inviting us to come to him. But isn't it tragic? We know the truth, don't we? Jesus said it himself. Broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many are on that. And narrows the road that leads to life. We could say that leads to the throne. And very few are on that. And what's perhaps just as tragic is many of his own children never take up the invitation to come until it's a last-ditch effort. As a final resort, we come before the throne and we make our case to the king and we ask for help because we're so desperate. And the whole time, he's been wanting our presence. He's been wanting our fellowship. He just keeps saying, come, just come to me. Just come to my throne. Just come into my presence. You'll find everything you need if you will just come. Let me suggest four things this morning about how to come to the throne. Here's the first one. We should approach this throne with a humble reverence. A humble reverence. We ought to think about the one who's on the throne. Now, there was a time when Jesus said this to his disciples. He said, I no longer call you servants, but I call you friends. And yet many, many times we see Jesus on the throne as the exalted, the high and lifted up one. One time he calls his friends. And I I really think that we err in thinking that Jesus is our buddy or Jesus is our good friend, you know. We need to realize as we come before this throne, we should come with a humble reverence, recognizing he is the Lord of Lords, that one on the throne. He is the king of kings. He is the high and exalted and lifted up one, says the scriptures. He is the name above all names. He dwarfs every ruler on this planet that has ever lived or will live. None will come close. Who can compare to the Lord, says the Psalms? The obvious answer, no one can. He alone sets up rulers and disposes of others. Go to Daniel 3 and 4 and read Nebuchadnezzar's story. He found out. He's on his rooftop and he's strolling one day and says, look at this great kingdom that I've made. And the Lord says, oh really? He says, you know what? You're gonna, eat cattle, or you're gonna eat grass like the cattle do. And then you read his testimony afterwards. And he gives credence to this very truth that the one on the throne is able to dispose and lift up as he chooses. That's the one we come to. The one that Genesis chapter one says that, and you read the text again and again. He said, God said, let there be light. And there was light. God said, let there be stars in the sky. And there was stars. God said, let all the waters teem with living things. And they did. And God said, let all the trees come up out of the ground. And it did. John chapter 11, he said to Lazarus, you come out of that tomb. And he did. Luke chapter 7, he said to that boy that was dead and his mother was grieving. He says, son, sit up. And he did. This is the one you approach. He has such authority just with his word. All of heaven worships and adores him, and all the demons and all hell tremble at his voice. And we need a clear understanding in this new year of who the one on the throne is, and who it is that we are coming before, and who it is that we are speaking to. I need to remember I am so pathetic. I don't even know what's going to happen this afternoon. I don't even know what's going to happen the next moment of my life. I am sinful and corrupted to the core. I make raw judgments all the time. Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says to me, Rob, you can't even add one hour to your life. See how we are in comparison to the one on the throne? He is the high and lifted up, the exalted one. And yet he invites us as lowly as we are. Come. Come to the throne of grace. It's the book of Job that, I love these verses, it puts things in perspective of who we are. How then can a mortal be righteous before God? How can one born of woman be pure? Even if the moon is not bright and the stars are not pure in his eyes, how much less a mortal who is but a maggot, a human being who is only a worm? Do you see who you are in comparison to the one on the throne? I really think as we come to the throne, we're invited, we should come. But never forget the one on the throne. Never forget how he is. Never forget that he is high and lifted up. It was Solomon who said, don't be so quick with your words. Remember, Rob, God's in heaven and you're earth, so let your words be few. So come before the throne, but come with a humble reverence. Secondly this, we can approach the throne of grace with a joyful gratitude in our hearts. And that's how we should do it is come before the throne, yes, with a humble reverence, but also with a joyful gratitude in our hearts. I can remember back when Brad Wall was premier of our province. Brad and I knew each other well and we're friends. And and so he phoned me up one day and he just said, Rob, I've, I've sworn in a new cabinet and I'd like you to come down to the parliament buildings. I'd like you to come to my office and then I'll take you into the cabinet. I'd like you to pray for our new cabinet. He said, you should know that, that most of these people do not know Christ and do not believe the Bible or anything. But he said, I want them to know that we need God's help. And he said, would you come? Would you come to the parliament buildings? Would you come to my office? Would you meet with my cabinet? Would you pray for them? I said, sure, I'd be glad to do that. I, I was thrilled. I mean, I was so excited. I, I just thought to myself, what if something goes wrong on the way? I got there an hour and a half early. I was sitting in the parking lot for an hour, twiddling my thumbs. He goes, I'm going before the premier, the highest office of our province. I was supposed to pray. And I made sure I had the right clothes and I went up there and and I went into his office. And if you've ever been to the premier's office in the parliament building, it's a big high door. The office is big and high and I'll never forget this. I walked in with Brad and I just said, wow, you have a great office. He said, no, I don't. He said, this isn't my office. He said, God has placed me in this place for this time and I'm using this office. What a great attitude. Do you ever wonder why our province prospered under someone who pointed to God? It's a great thing. Now, if I was so excited about going to do that, and and I told a few people, I said, guess where I was? Guess what I got to do? Do you get that way when you approach the throne of grace? Did you get that way this morning when you got up and you took the word of God and and you started to pray? Did you actually get excited thinking, I am coming before the throne of grace this morning. I'm coming before the king this morning, and he's going to receive me. Does it ever cross your radar? Or is it just duty? Is this routine? I always read the Daily Bread. So we do, you know. I mean, so Christians do. We, we need that enthusiasm, that joy-filled gratitude in our hearts. I cannot believe I have access to your throne. All of the Old Testament would have longed for what you and I have in coming in at any time. And we just take it for granted, or we just forget it, or does your heart ever swell up with deep gratitude to God for the fact that he's redeemed you? that you know him by name. You could be outside today and not know Christ. You could still be dead in your sins and lost today. You may never have known the fellowship and the peace and all the things that are yours in Christ today. But by his grace, he not only saved you, he opened your eyes up to the truth and then he enabled you to respond to it. And so when we come to the throne of grace, there should be a great gratitude in our heart. It should be like John, First John. Chapter 3, verse 1. Oh, what love the Father has lavished on us. That we should be called the children of God, and that's what we are. Isn't that amazing? So come before the throne. Come with a humble rest, reverence, yes. Come with a joyful gratitude. Thirdly, we should approach the throne of grace with a submissive heart, and yet an expectant heart. A submissive and expectant heart we live and we've known this for years and years in an entitlement society in canada our society believes that we have the right to everything and boy when our rights get taken away do we get excited because we have that entitlement attitude i used to think that was the world but in my work i circulate in about 50 different churches across western canada and maybe it's just the associated gospel churches that has the problem but But I really think that that entitlement attitude has snuck into the church of Jesus Christ. And we have an entitlement attitude that I believe grieves the one on the throne. The Lord's convicted me a lot in the last year and put his finger on this issue in my life and I'm going to share it with you because I think it's not just me. God has established according to Romans 13 He has established the governments and he has set them there. And he said, whoever rebels against the governments rebels against me and then these sobering words. And if they do, they will bring judgment on themselves. There's been a lot of talk about our governments that has come from the body of Christ that's been slanderous towards our government. And we have said many times If only that prime minister of ours would be gone. He's such a, you know, and and on and on we go. And I think, wait a second. God put him there. Do I think that I know better than God? Do I think that I have a greater purpose and plan than God does? Do I dare question the one on the throne and what he's doing and who he's put in power and not in power? He has never said to me, I want you to judge the government. He has never said to me, you're free to speak slanderously if they go astray. All he has said to me in the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 2, is he said, Rob, I want you to pray for those in authority. I didn't ask your opinion. I didn't ask your judgment. I simply asked you to pray for them. And I really believe that we are at a stage, very quickly as the church, where not only have we rebelled against those in authority, but we're at a point now where we're bringing judgment upon ourselves as the church because we've done that. Paul said that would happen. See how serious that is. See, my heart does not want to submit. And I have troubles even submitting to God <laughs> and his purposes and his ways and his plans, especially when I don't like it. And so all these things happen and government legislation all come down and I get mad. and I get. Rebe- God said, I just asked you to pray for them. They're my servant. I put them there. I know what I'm doing, will you trust me? I've really learned in this last year what Jesus so basically taught in Luke chapter 11. Rob, this is what I'm asking of you. I'm asking you to pray, not my will, but your will be done. He said, Rob, do you really want my will? Or is it always about your will and what you think is best? Do you really think you know better than I do, Rob? See, we have to take the scriptures and apply it to real life. When I come before the throne, I ought never to come in a demanding way of God. Paul said, yes, let your request be made known. But he never said that we have a right to demand anything of God. We do not have an entitlement attitude as we come before the throne. We must come with a submissive heart. Understanding the one there knows what he's doing, fully confident of that. And yet the flip side of this is that I come by faith and I ask by faith and I ask with an expectant heart because I remember what the Lord Jesus said in Luke chapter 11, and verse nine, when he said, Rob, if you will ask, you'll receive. If you will seek, you'll find. If you'll knock, I'll open the door for you. That's the same one. James chapter one, and verse five, James says, when we ask, we shouldn't be like a wave of the sea in doubt. that's tossed back and forth. So we come submissively, but we come with an expectant heart, don't we? Because he's our father and we can come and we can ask and we know that he will receive us. It's important both of these aspects to be able to come with a submissive heart but with an expectant heart. We shouldn't come in and doubt whether he'll do something. We should come in with confidence and that's the fourth point I wanted you to notice this morning with me is that we should approach the throne of grace with confidence and that's what our text tells us again let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need this aspect of confidence is two-sided we come in confident that we'll be received because he's our father the one on the throne this high and lifted up one this exalted one he's our father we're his children He's lavished this love on us and called us his children. And so we come in with a confidence. We don't come in with fear and trembling and think, well, what if he doesn't accept me? He doesn't say you have to know me for X number of years before you come. There's no limitation. He doesn't say what age you have to be. He doesn't say how often we can come. He just says come. Why? Because I'm your father and I've made you my child. And I want you to come before my throne. I'm inviting you to come. It's not at all like it was in the day of Esther in the Old Testament. Do you remember Esther's story? She asked everybody to pray for her because she, with fear and trembling, was going to go in and see the king. But he hadn't invited her. It would be in the end of her life, possibly. That's not how it is with us. With us, he invites us to come. We are his children. We have that confidence. But we also have confidence. The other side of this is that he will never lie. He will never deceive us. Every promise that he ever made, he'll make good on and so we have that confidence that there's an impossibility for God to lie or to break a promise or go back on his word. And so we have confidence as we ask that he'll remain faithful, true to his character. We remember in Genesis eighteen fourteen where the Lord said to Abraham, is anything too difficult for the Lord? Do you really think God could end this pandemic in 2022? Is anything too difficult? Too difficult for the Lord? When you come before the throne, come with confidence. Come and ask. Years ago, there was a Baptist pastor. He was an evangelist, and uh, he was down in the States, and he was doing a crusade, and after the crusade, he had one day between when he was going to get on the train and leave. Dr. Bass was his name. He loved baseball. So on the day off, the day between the the things finishing and the day he was going to leave on the train, he went to a baseball game. As he went to a baseball game, there was a, a little guy, just a young fellow with red hair, happily going through the stands. He was selling programs, and he was whistling. And Dr. Pass said, I'll take a program. And the little boy said, here you go, sir. And he said, do you know the song you're whistling, Sonny? You're a good whistler. And the little fellow said, yes, I do know the song. He said, what's the words to the song that you're whistling? And the little guy said, my wonderful Lord, my wonderful Lord, by angels and seraphs in heaven adored, I bow at your shrine, my Savior divine, my wonderful, wonderful Lord. Now that's music to an evangelist's ears. He said, Sonny, do you know that Lord? He said, yes, I do, sir. It's Jesus Christ he took his programs and down he went into the other stands and sold the programs. And Doctor Dr. Bass's heart was just blessed that day, being an evangelist. That here's a little boy being such a vibrant witness. The next day, Doctor Bass got on the train to go, and as he picked up a paper and sat down in his seat, he started to read the paper, and he came across the headlines: "Young boy struck down by car and killed." And he looked at the picture. And it's the picture of the little red-headed boy who just yesterday was singing about this wonderful Lord. Dr. Bass said, there was a couple of tears that came down my eyes as I thought about the words, I bow at your shrine, my Savior divine, my wonderful, wonderful Lord. He said, I was envious. He said, I thought back to the words that I asked him and he said, yes, I know that Lord. And today, he was in his presence 24 hours after that. My prayer for the church of Jesus Christ is that we will have confidence like that, that we will be a vibrant and a bold and a courageous witness to whoever it is that God brings across our pathway. And I pray that our attitude will be just like the last line of that hymn. My Savior divine, I bow at your shrine my wonderful, wonderful Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for these moments in your presence and just to remind ourselves again of who it is that's on the throne, who it is that's in control. Father, we need to stand in awe and in wonder of who you are. We need to come with expectant hearts and yet also in humbleness and in reverence for you. Thank you that you have lavished love on us and called us your children so we can come in with confidence. Thank you that all that we need for life and for godliness, Peter said, you would supply for us. And so, Lord, may this year you take our lives in whatever manner you decide. Would you cause us to be a vibrant witness, a courageous witness, a bold witness, We're living in a world where people's lives are filled with fear, where many have lost hope, and yet, Lord, we have the answer. We know the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. May we proclaim it in every circumstance, at every opportunity. And we'd ask for this today, not for ourselves, that people would think that we're great Christians, but simply for the glory of our King, who is on his throne. In his name we pray, amen. Isn't it humbling that the Creator of all things invites us to come? Now let's get excited this week as we embrace the grace of God. Let's turn aside our earthly treasures and let's build up our heavenly treasures. Go in peace.